Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Vijay Prashad to the podcast. Vijay is an Indian Marxist historian and commentator. He's an executive director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, the chief editor of Left World Books, and a senior non-resident fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies in China. He's written more than 20 books, including The Darker Nations and The Poorer Nations. Thank you very much, Vijay, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we discuss some very interesting, timely and uh, some provocative questions as well, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, Vijay, what you do, and maybe a little bit about the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research? Well, I've been a journalist for most of my life. I've also, you know, had the fortune of getting a doctoral degree in history. So I, I have that perspective as well. I taught for many years in universities in different parts of the world. But principally, I'm a journalist. I like to go and busy myself with other people's stories, um, you know, ferret out tales that are not being told um, as, you know, as I believe they should be told. Well, I'm lucky. I now work for a syndication service called Globetrotter, which basically sends me around the world to cover pretty much anything I'd like to cover. It's really an amazing um, place to be given the state of journalism today, especially foreign international reporting. I also run a research institute, which is based in India, in Brazil, in South Africa and Argentina. Um, we are what we call a movement driven research institute. In other words, we work with social and political movements to develop our agenda and to develop the work we do. You know, we did a remarkable study recently about a steel factory in India, which was, um, you know, one of the largest steel factories in the country. Government was desperate to privatize it, to shutter it, to do anything but keep it going. The workers fought back and they really were able to defend their factory and keep it going. And it's pretty amazing story. The story was built with trade union leaders. They offered their own perspective. Um, our, our teams of researchers accompanied them in the storytelling. So that's what I'm, I'm up to largely, um, you know, gadding about, picking up stories here and there, and then being fortunate enough to work with a team of terrific researchers um, who have the, I guess, decency to accompany movements in their telling of their story rather than impose a story on them. 
Fantastic, fantastic. A very wide range of material as well. And uh, recently, and not so recently, some very interesting pieces about about, about climate and uh, India, the global south. And, and uh, we touch on some of those. But just before we start also, I'm just wondering, and particularly maybe from an environmental perspective, what worries you most about this particular moment in time? What keeps you awake? Are, are there particular issues that you think amongst the there is a tsunami of, of, of challenges we face at the moment. I mean, you're quite right to say that there's a tsunami of challenges because there really is. You know, I, many years ago, long before the pandemic, really, I wrote something where I said, you know, um, you know, what four horses of the apocalypse, even a fifth is not enough, maybe a sixth, you know, um, there are cascading um, apocalypses that uh, have impacted upon people. And I was really interested. I read a new UN report, the Human Development Report. And in the report, it said, well, you know, the situation is really bad in the world. Um, there's been a deterioration in the sustainable development goals. The climate situation is terrible. Environmental situation, terrible. And then they, they decided to analyze this and said, well, the reason things are so bad is, number one, the pandemic. Um, number two, the war in Ukraine and so on and so forth. I thought, that's interesting. Then I remembered that a report published by the same United Nations a few months ago had a slightly different perspective. I went back and found that report, which showed it, it's about human security. That report showed that six out of seven people surveyed on the planet Earth are feeling insecure. Six out of seven. That's an enormous number. Um, and what was interesting was the survey was conducted before the pandemic and therefore certainly before the war in Ukraine, which means that there have been a series of cascading crises, uh, many of them occasioned by grotesque, um, you know, uh, profit taking by a very small number of people uh, that has been there before the pandemic. And many of our problems, you know, maybe the pandemic revealed some of the problems to people. But the problems were there before. You can't blame the climate catastrophe and the environmental devastation on the pandemic. You know, that, that precedes it. And it's ugly. And we've known it for a long time. And there simply isn't the will. And why is there no will? Not because people don't know the science. It's just that there's too much money to be made in the short term. And if you really want to confront environmental devastation and climate destruction, in fact, planetary destruction, you're going to have to confront the fact that a very small number of people in this planet of ours are making so much money and they, they have a lot of power and they're just not willing to let the system be changed. Yeah. Um, you're, you're a Marxist. What does a, a Marxist perspective, shall we say, bring to bear in terms of looking at the climate and the environment? What, what do you see? What kind of uh, relationships and perspectives that don't appear, that we don't see by looking at it in the more conventional ways? Well, you know, let's go back to the 19th century. You, you said to me, you're a Marxist. Well, let's go back to Karl Marx. Um, in, in the 19th century, when Marx was observing the nature of the economic system, he put two things right directly on the table. One was the phenomena of colonialism. You know, colonialism was so central to the development of capitalism. You know, it should be a no-brainer, but people have, haven't really registered this fact, which is that 
the economy in human bodies you know what's known as slavery plays such a crucial role in building up the massive wealth which is then invested into factories in england and so on you know it's the wealth that comes from um the caribbean it's the wealth that comes from the theft of people's labor um it's the wealth that comes from the colonization of india you know the forcing of the indian peasantry to grow opium that opium then dumped on china that whole colonial enterprise set in motion um in a kind of organized and and very uh, you know uh, productive way in the 18th and 19th century that marx puts directly on the table now why is this important comes to the second issue you know when the british arrived in india um they decided well look there are really very um lucrative things that we can find here including precious metals and minerals but also we can get the peasantry with huge violence to grow things like as i said opium but to get the opium from northern bihar near the nepal border uh, to the port city of calcutta which the british had built where i was born we need to build railways well that's good how do you build a railway you need steel so you're going to extract um you know iron ore and 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 have small steel factories to build the rails but here's the scandal um that is often not remarked upon you know to hold the rails down firm you need these things that are bits of wood um that are called ties because they tie the rails down firmly uh, to the earth well those bits of wood um you know there's just this enormous tonnage of wood used to build railway lines from say the opium fields to the port what was really striking was what the british used um to build those ties the british used in parts of eastern india mahogany an extraordinary precious wood the tree takes a long time to grow they just clear cut the mahogany forests of bihar and used that mahogany to build ties not to build furniture and so on it's really a beautiful wood if people want to go and and look up uh the mahogany tree and and how long it takes for it to grow it's a it's an enormous a genocide of mahogany conducted in india well as part of the colonial enterprise there was an utter disregard for um nature uh, this is of course something that happens as well in western europe in in the united kingdom and so on but the level of destruction of the countryside in parts of the colonies is just unbelievable it's at an it's at a different scale uh there was mass cutting of forests deforestation at very high rates um you know there was a destruction of of uh, of 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 hillsides because in many parts of the world including in india um they did a lot of mining that was strip mining not necessarily down into the mountain itself but they just carved the whole mountain up in a part of jharkhand in, in, just south of bihar where the opium was was grown um you know the british discovered there was an enormous seam of coal and started to mine that coal did you know that there's a part of jharkhand where there's been a fire underneath the ground for over 100 years there was a fire in a coal seam which the british were not able to put out and and when the british left in 47 that fire was so out of control it continues to rage till today nobody has been able to put it out um environmental destruction is a major part of the capitalist enterprise from the very beginning um and which is why marx writes with great feeling about the destruction of the environment if you read his 
notes toward the end of his life, he goes on and on about how the metabolic rift destroyed, um, you know, the, our capacity to understand nature as a partner uh, with whom we survive on the planet. You know, we, we just treat nature as a resource and, and then destroy it. Well, it's interesting that theme is there in the 19th century um, in, in Marx's writings, much of it forgotten in the urge to build up the capacity of people, you know, to improve uh, people's lives. We've really treated nature in a, in a abysmal way. And I think the wake-up call for this, apart from uh, the entire early 20th century of movements to have a different relationship with nature, the wake-up call for this was at the Rio Conference on the Environment held in 1992, um, a very key event, uh, which you know was not about climate change, it was about the environment. The climate comes after that, but this was principally about the way humans treat the environment, and not just humans, but how capitalism has treated the environment. One has to be quite precise about this. It's not all humans. I'm not keen on that word, you know, the human anthropomorphism, you know, however one says it, um, where it's humans have destroyed the planet. I don't believe that's necessarily true. Look at Pakistan. You know, Pakistan has provided 1% of the carbon into the great carbon budget that we have, the utilization of, 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 of the atmosphere, 1%. And yet one third of Pakistan, maybe more, maybe closer to half of Pakistan is now struggling because of those catastrophic floods. Can't blame the Pakistanis uh, for climate change. They've only contributed 1%. So it's not exactly human um, you know, contribution. It's this system that we have where also there's a kind of north-south divide in terms of who's been benefiting from the massive uh, profits that are generated by destroying the earth. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm, we come on to the, this topic of the, you know, the, the treatment, the common but differentiated responsibilities, the, the, the questions around the funding and, uh, and, and so forth. You talk about the, the historical roots there of Marxism and uh, relationship with the environment. I'm just wondering also, uh, a key element is, is, is clearly this question of uh, class. Uh, and I'm just wondering, how does a class perspective help deal and think about the concatenation of issues, should we say, at the heart of climate. I know you mentioned, uh, well, before the, the call, the, the farmers holding protests and, you know, a hugely uh, powerful, I guess, class struggle in India. Um, I'm just wondering also about how looking at it through a class lens brings light to the situation. So it's important to understand that at the origin of capitalism, um, a small group of people, whether by force or by guile or, or whatever the, the actual mechanism that this was done, were able to monopolize a large part of the instruments that generate wealth. You know, for instance, money. Um, a small section was able to monopolize money. And a very large part of the human population was dispossessed. Uh, this happened in many parts of the world, possibly. For instance, I've already mentioned the term colonialism. Colonialism essentially dispossessed very large numbers of people on the planet. Um, but it's not just colonialism. It's also through, for instance, um, the way in which the enclosure mo movement worked in, in Britain, where people who used to work on common lands or who lived on common lands were thrown off the land. Um, these were, say, smallholder peasants were suddenly told, sorry, fellas, you don't have any means to 
uh, reproduce your own lives. You're going to have to come back to me and get a job. In other words, you're going to have to become a wage laborer. You can't actually survive without the capital that I have hoarded. So this mechanism of a small number of people, in fact, uh, monopolizing power, monopolizing property, monopolizing privilege, this exercise of monopolizing power, property and privilege is the class struggle. It's in fact the elites who impose a class struggle uh, on the vast mass of people. And then it waits as it were. The class struggle pauses at that point, you know, takes a deep breath and waits for the people who have been dispossessed to fight back. One of the interesting features of how people understand the class struggle is they always assume that trade unions initiate the class struggle. You know, the, the, the struggle is initiated by the workers. The workers are responsible for the strike. That's not true. It's the fact of dispossession that imposes a class struggle on society. And then workers fight back. Workers, in fact, are fighting a, um, a defensive action to try to take back, claw back some of the power that they used to have, some of the privileges they used to have, and perhaps some of the property that they had. So, you know, you can't understand um, the environmental destruction or the climate catastrophe without taking a class perspective on it. Um, and the reason is because we, we understand if we look at these things closely, look at the facts, we understand that the climate catastrophe takes place principally because of the way in which a small percentage of the world's population has accumulated, uh, let's take one of those things, property. I'll give you an example. You know, in a country like Nepal, one of the biggest killers of Nepali women is asphyxiation. Nepali women asphyxiate at a very high rate. Now, a curious person will ask, why do Nepali women asphyxiate? Interesting observation. Uh, why indeed? Well, because um, in many of the peasant homes, working class homes and so on, um, you know, most of the cooking is done by women for historical reasons of patriarchy. Well, these women are working in small kitchens and they're using charcoal or coal, you know, burnt fires, small fires in a little angiti, a little stove which generates an enormous amount of smoke because they're using charcoal and coal. Um, and they breathe the smoke in as they're making the dal and the chapatis and things, and then they get lung problems and die. Well, interesting that in most engineering departments, in most universities around the world, there are hundreds if not thousands of designs for what's known as the smokeless chula, the smokeless stove. Students have designed these for years. It's actually not a difficult design uh, to make. Not hard at all. Why isn't a smokeless stove on the market in Nepal? Well, here's the answer. It's a simple answer. The smokeless stove is not on the market in Nepal because the peasants and the workers in the cities of Nepal who's, uh, who are dying of asphyxiation simply don't have the money to buy a highly engineered stove. What you do have is occasionally a charity or an NGO will distribute, say, a hundred of them here and there. But that doesn't solve the problem because there are millions of people who are cooking food twice, three times a day on a stove that's producing an enormous amount of smoke. Well, it produces a lot of smoke. That's on the one side bad for the environment. Secondly, it's killing people. But because these people don't have money, they can't produce a market for these uh, devices and therefore, the device doesn't um, get produced and manufactured in a mass way. So 
the question I asked in the beginning is why did they die of, of, of asphyxiation? They die of asphyxiation because they don't have money. Um, and why did I give you that example? Well, because this is how the class struggle operates. You know, these people who are asphyxiating are dying as part of a class struggle. Um, and nobody sees them. Their death is entirely invisible. The death is invisible because they don't count. They don't count because they don't have money. If they don't have money, they don't have power. The other way to build power is to organize yourself, you know, to create unions of housewives who are dying of asphyxiation and go out onto the street and, and conduct a strike. Well, in doing that, these women will then have an active role in the class struggle, not a passive role. So I would say how, how can one even think of the climate catastrophe without understanding these small stories that I'm telling you. But if you add all the small stories up, you have a very large story. Yeah, shocking. Shocking. You talk about the history of colonialism and the colonial kind of enterprise, but also uh, presumably this colonial mindset remains. And can you talk a little bit about this? Can you talk about the ways that the, the, that, that the uh, countries from the global south, uh, I guess, this getting a seat at the table, the, the kind of agreements that were uh, put in place that were promised, the, the, the funding, um, the Green Climate Fund, uh, the whole idea of common but differentiated responsibilities, you know, the, the promise that that had and, and, and what's actually happened, BJ. It's really important that you mention common and differentiated responsibilities. And, you know, it's a phrase that I use a lot because I, I don't want this phrase to be forgotten, uh, largely because it's a treaty obligation. And I'll come back to that in a minute. A lot of our thinking about the environment and climate must return to Rio. Um, the 1992 meeting, United Nations meeting at Rio is so important for the modern world. And by the way, if your listeners are interested, they can go online and read Fidel Castro's speech he gave at Rio. It is a marvelous speech. It's a masterclass in humanism. I, I highly recommend it. It's one of Fidel's most powerful speeches. And I really hope people will go and read it. Okay. At Rio... There was a fierce debate, and this is now 1992. The Soviet Union has collapsed. The United States is beginning to demonstrate that it is primus inter pares, you know, first among equals, but there's no real equal. Um, the United States already gone in and, and really devastated Iraq in the war in 1991. Um, the so-called highway of death was such a difficult thing for those of us who reported on that war to watch U.S. planes follow retreating Iraqi troops and just kill them, slaughter them as they ran out of Kuwait. I mean, it's, a, it's something that I will find hard to forget, but I think the world has utterly forgotten that. Um, anyway, it's in that context that the world meets in Rio de Janeiro. Um, at the time, again, the United States feeling its oats as one of the most powerful countries in the world, perhaps at the time the most powerful. Uh, the Soviet Union greatly weakened uh, collapsed and then Boris Yeltsin as the head of government of the what was then called the Commonwealth of Internet of Independent States. Okay, Fidel, you know, carrying that flag gives that marvelous speech. Now at Rio, fierce debate about who should bear the cost for environmental devastation. And to the credit of many of the formerly colonial countries, countries that had been colonized, to their credit, you know, Mexico, um, India. Uh, India plays an interesting role there. 
um, many countries from the African continent and so on just said, look, we can't have a situation where we basically say all countries are responsible for environmental devastation. So all of us have to basically uh, bear the brunt of it, you know, and, and deal with it together you know, in a combined way. We can't have that. We will agree that we are all going to face the impact of environmental devastation. You know, we'll all agree that environmental devastation is going to uh, not save anybody. Um, yes, small island states will get hit the first when, when the sea waters rise. Yes, countries where there's been the dumping of toxics are going to get badly damaged. There was no debate, by the way, there about Vietnam, which had faced um, sustained chemical bombardment during the U.S. war. Uh, you know, Agent Orange dropped on precious fertile agricultural fields in the center, center of Vietnam. There was no discussion of that, but there were other such catastrophes on the table. Okay, everybody agreed that the whole world is going to equally or almost equally experience the um, net impact of environmental destruction. You know, the ozone layer issue was a big one still, um, that the planet was going to be burnt because the ozone layer was being eroded uh, by various you know chemicals that humans had started to use. All right. Everybody agreed. Common. Yes, we have, um, you know, uh, a common uh, predicament, but we have differential responsibilities because the colonial powers, the powers that had colonized very many parts of the world, um, these powers, uh, these powers, which also happen to be the leading capitalist forces on the world, um, had taken the greatest profit from environmental destruction. Um, there's a word that's used in economics, mainstream economics called externalities. It's a very useful word. Um, it describes a process used by these countries and by large firms, which is to say, let's say I have a, a factory that produces chemicals. Um, I just dump all the chemical waste into the river. Well, the dumping of that waste is a cost, the cost of, of having these toxics in the river. Since the firm is not actually paying to clean it up, it's an externality. It's external to the cost, um, the, you know, the accounting of the firm. The firm has not got it on its books. It has externalized the cost to nature, to society, to the country, to whoever. But it's not on the books of the, of the company. Well, there was a debate in economics in the 60s and 70s about externalities and negative externalities and so on. At Rio, the debate was, look, you've, you know, you've basically destroyed the planet with uh, your big companies and their operations by colonialism and so on. You've benefited. You have enormous surpluses of capital and you have wealth uh, either in your country or in offshore accounts and so on. Well, you have a greater responsibility to clean up the planet than people who have been essentially victimized by this. So that's the reason why in very fierce debating, Rio produced that formula of common and differentiated responsibilities that the advanced countries, uh, the old colonial powers would have to essentially, effectively pay more to clean up the world. That was the, the essence of that formula. Well, when the climate change issue came up, that formula, I thought, was even more precise for that debate. Because, look, let's face it, n nobody can really deny the facts that um, Western Europe North America and so on, they bear the brunt for destroying the climate. I mean, that's precisely where a lot of the 
um, the carbon emissions have come from historically. So it's hard to say, oh, look, China is to blame, India is to blame. When you look at historical carbon emissions, principal scofflaws have been North America and Western Europe. So, yeah, the climate destruction catastrophe is going to have a common problem for everybody. We're all going to face it one way or the other. There'll be some differences. Some people will experience catastrophic drought. Some will experience flooding. Others will experience sea level rise and so on. But basically, everybody's going to one way or the other experience the climate catastrophe. But who is responsible for that? Well, it's mainly going to be Western Europe and uh, the um, North America. Well, then they should pay more into these climate funds. This is a treaty obligation. You know, first, the treaty at Rio, which set in place that that um, that phrase, common and differentiated responsibilities. And then it's a treaty obligation because subsequent to that in Paris, Tokyo, you know, all of these various conversations, there was a, a treaty obligation that the uh, countries with the greater uh, carbon emissions were going to contribute more into the climate fund. That has just not happened. The reason to build the climate fund was twofold. One was mitigation, helping countries or peoples that were going to bear the brunt immediately. Um, you know, I, there was no discussion about this, but perhaps some of that fund could go towards helping relocate climate refugees and so on. This is a controversial issue, I'll, I'll admit. But the other one was to help countries leapfrog beyond carbon emissions, you know, to go into new technologies and so on. That has just not happened. I mean, there's a lot of chit-chat. I mean, I've been to several of these COP meetings, the conference of parties regarding these treaties. There's a lot of chit-chat, but nobody opens the checkbook at the end. Or if they open it, they don't put money down. They just put change. And that's just not enough. And, and, and it's interesting. I mean, a, a lot of this, as you say, has taken place uh, at Rio and these various conferences, the COPs and so forth. And... Um, the general governance, the global economy, the whole, I call, I guess, what you call the Bretton Woods, IMF, World Bank system under which the economy is operated remains very powerful, uh, notwithstanding a recent uh, piece in the Financial Times where, where they were talking about the fact that China has been, you know, providing these loans to uh, other countries and uh not 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 instituting IMF type protocols and uh, causing a bit of consternation and so forth. But in, in one of your more recent reports, you talked about the inspiration that uh, you you and and your fellow thinkers were 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 got from things like the World's People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth, People's World Conference and the Defense of Life. These ideas, the alternative water form, the People's Summit. Can you talk a little bit about the 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 inspiration about about what they represent, what 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 have they achieved, and and why don't we see more momentum there? I mean, underlying these, I guess, in in, in some part, are some ideas like the Buen Vivir and uh, Teco Pora. I don't know how to pronounce that, but they're a very different vision. I mean, it comes down to how human beings want to live. You know, it's a, it's really, it's a moral question. It's not even an economic question. Um, you know, you walk into a big shop somewhere and there's like a million different kinds of cereal to eat in the morning or there's so many different kinds of bread and so on. There's enormous choices, you know, of goods to buy. But people don't have choices for their lives. 
You know, there's a cost of living crisis now in most of the world. Most of the world is racked by cost of living crisis. And this um, energy crisis in Europe, you know, actually, it's interesting. When Europe starts to bid for energy from around the world, it lifts the global price of energy. Um, so it's not a it's not a neutral act. But anyway, <coughs> um, you know, people have the choice when they go into a supermarket. I can buy this. I can buy that. But what about choices for people's lives? You know, there's a great desolation. There's a desert of choices. You know, they're living in a desert. Uh, look, look at that report I mentioned earlier from the UN. Six of seven people on the planet are feeling insecure. Um, what kind of freedom is this? It's well worth asking from a moral standpoint. You know, that's um, one thing to, if you had money to have to be able to make choices about what you want to buy, consumer choices, you know, if you have money. But in fact, you don't have choices as a citizen. You don't have choices as a human. Um, you know, young person wants to build a life. They don't have any choices. They have to go out there and take the first job that they can find in order to survive. Um, that's no way to live. You know, humans have developed such immensely interesting technology. Humans have developed um, so many interesting ideas, thoughts, and so on. And yet here we are, you know, telling our children, you better rush to get the first ghastly job that's available to you because you need to build your, your resume. You need to survive. You need to have a career. You need to do this. Um, nobody's pausing and saying, is this what it's all about? I mean, you know, you've got people working for decades for some firm let go just in an afternoon. You know, maybe they don't even get their pension. I mean, it's a scandalous uh, way in which we seem to sleepwalk through life. You know, there's something terrible about it. And I feel like, therefore, these conferences in, in Bolivia that were held in the 2010s, which asked about, you know, let's live the good life. Let's live a decent life. Let's think about the lives we want to live. These kind of questions for me, they should be discussed everywhere in the planet. You know, um, I was recently in Ireland uh, and, you know, you can see the, the, the kind of difficulty people have with housing. They have a major housing crisis. Um, the cost of living has gone up. Nobody seems to have any answers to it. You know, how does one answer these questions? Um, why is there not pressure to solve, for instance, the energy problems? You know, why is there not pressure? Why is that not at the top of the table? You know, uh, why aren't there international discussions about how this energy issue is really quite ridiculous? There's sufficient energy in the world. What's going on? Um, is it about where people are in the markets or is it about, um, you know, the monopolies that exist? That there's some people, even in this time of a great cost of living Price is making a lot of money. Um, you know, I was looking recently at some of the quarterly profits coming in. Well, certainly arms companies seem to have no problem making runaway profits. You know, what's going on? Energy companies making runaway profits. Something is wrong here. And that's why I go back to those conferences in Bolivia where people said, let's, let's take a seat and let's discuss what kind of life do we want to live? What kind of relationship with nature uh, do we want to have, you know, is it worth destroying the planet in order for me to be able to go into a grocery store and pick from 20 different kinds of cereal? Uh, is that worthwhile? I mean, have we created a civilization worth living in? Is this really a civilization? Um, I think that's why I turn back to 
some of those discussions because they have the decency perhaps to go back and ask the principle, the question of first principle, you know, what are we doing here? Um, a question that I don't know if young people have the option of asking because everything is accelerated for them, you know, including um, the fact that they have a very accelerated sense of the futility of human life. Uh, the people's movements that uh, you're talking about and the people's movements we've seen, uh, you, you, you work in many different countries, you travel. What's your sense of the possibilities there? Because these, these ideas stand in stark opposition to the kind of top-down, you know, uh, IMF, World Bank system, whatever you would call it. Um, but I spoke to Mike Davis a while back, and he was profoundly disappointed with, with the way in which the energy that had been generated, young people's commitment, motivation around Black Lives Matter, uh, early Bernie as well, how that kind of dissipated. And he felt there was just a sense of not confusion, but just not even despair, but just a kind of disappointment and, and lackluster kind of energy for, for young people. But more generally around the world, what prospects do you see for, you know, more bottom up, more people's movements? And what's your feeling of the lay of the land, BJ? It's a good question. And I don't want to, you know, inject a sense of despair into the answer. Um, but because I would start with a, a disagreement with with how, you know, Mike perhaps formulated his understanding, which is to say, I think it's unfair to put a lot of stock in uh, youth campaigners. Um, and there's many reasons for that. One is that, you know, young people necessarily react to problems um, with a great deal of enthusiasm, idealism. I mean, I remember being there. I was a very active uh, young person involved in all kinds of struggles of one kind or the other. Um, but you see, you can't build um, a movement based on enthusiasm. It, it takes a lot of work to be spontaneous, you know. Yeah, I think his point was more general, but he pointed, to, I think, through his children, he saw this in, in, in a very close, proximate way. But more generally, that the kind of progressive uh, you know, movement, the people on the streets and so forth, that just the loss of momentum, generally. But I don't, I, I don't know what one is talking about then, because maybe it depends where you are. Um, I mean, you know, just about, well, now almost a year ago, um, Indian farmers were on strike for an entire year and they were able to defeat the Indian government to get them to withdraw three farm bills which would have uberized Indian farming. That was a considerable struggle. Right through the pandemic, South African trade unions have been battling against employers, fighting against the government, making significant gains. I think that's really quite important. Um, we see the landless workers movement in Brazil, the MST, um, you know, defending their settlements. They have, you know, thousands of people living in settlements, growing agroecological food. They are now at the heart of the Lula campaign. In fact, you know, a few days before we, we are speaking, um, Lula came and visited Armazen do Campo, where the MST has their main shop in uh, downtown Sao Paulo. He gave a talk to the MST activists. You know, there's a lot of activity. I, I don't see um, dissipation of anything. Yeah, I think that was a specific focus on, on the United States. And this is exactly what, what I, I was interested to get your perspective. But what can you draw from that, that there will always be some pockets of resistance, 
can you draw any conclusions from that? Is is it, you know, I mean, of course, it's it, you're talking about something, you know, throughout the world and so many different places. But what can you conclude from that, VJ? Well, it's also in the United States because one sees now these workers at Amazon, Starbucks and so on organizing, many of them young people building power in their workplaces. What I see from that is when power imposes a struggle on people who are relatively powerless, they will fight back. You know, if you take a pillow and shove it on somebody's face as they are lying in a bed, they're not going to just allow you to suffocate them. They're going to fight back. And that's the nature of the class struggle. You know, right now, um, as the situation, as essentially capital cuts into the bone of human existence, people are fighting back everywhere. Uh, not here, there, and not sporadically. We're beginning to see large movements. What we saw in Sri Lanka was quite interesting. The actual problem isn't that people aren't struggling. The problem is how to canalize all that energy to build power so that you have a different project. I think it's a separate issue. I think people are always going to struggle. You've got cascading strikes in the United Kingdom. They are going to continue to take place. The issue is where does that get delivered? Where does that energy win? You know, is it going to win somehow in a ballot box? Is it going to transform social understanding and make people say, no, we have to build a different kind of power? We, we, we actually have to look at this differently. Struggles are taking place. I mean, I can spend hours reciting for you from Japan all the way out to um, to Chile, the nature of struggles. In Chile, the uh, new constitution was defeated 60 to 40 in an election. The very next day, uh, high school students aged 12, 13, 14 were out on the streets at the subway stations in a major demonstration. You know, this is the very day after a great demoralizing defeat for the new constitution. Didn't stop those kids coming on the street. So we have protests galore, one end of the planet to the other. What are your thoughts on canalizing that, taking that energy and turning it into a project, as you say? Well, a great example is Colombia. In Colombia, a set of struggles began in 2019 around the cost of living. This is before the pandemic. The cost of living had become difficult. People were angry and frustrated with the government for betraying the peace agreement, the Havana agreement of 2016. Cycle of protest begins in Colombia. What's interesting is in the middle of all this, the various important political forces of the left and center left gathered together. They built trust among the social movements, the political forces and so on. And they created an enormous electoral coalition, which for the first time since 1810 elected a left wing president uh, in the election this year. And that's Gustavo Petro who, you know, was a former guerrilla, he's a Marxist, comes from the left, and his running mate, Francia Marquez, Afro-Colombian woman, social movement leader, herself a lawyer of social movements and so on, they were able to, to transfer that enormous energy, the cycle of protest 2019, 2020, 2021. They took all that energy, crafted a kind of electoral instrument, and, and won the election in 2020. Two. Now, the interesting thing is Petro and Marquez are driving a very interesting agenda in the government. You know, he goes to talk to the Colombian military, a wretched military, which has been fighting a war against their own people. And he gave a speech. I thought it was extraordinary how he opened a door to a different reality. What Gustavo Petro said was, hey, listen, 
you know, for since 1810, effectively, since Colombia got independence from Spain, you as a military have been preparing for war. My challenge to you is how do you prepare for peace? And I thought that itself opens a window for the population. So we have examples of places where cycles of protests have been put together by clever people, by, by important organizations into an instrument that effectively is able to take state power. Now, what they're able to do with it, can they transfer society? Petro and Marquez have said they're going to basically make Colombia carbon neutral. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, <laughs> that's uh, an enormous uh, claim because it's an oil exporting country. Petro has said we want to shut all the oil, oil, oil fields down. That's a challenge. How are you going to finance the country? But that's what they put on the table. Let's see what happens. I take a lot of inspiration from things like that, you know, movements like that. And we need to lift them up, study them, see if this can be replicated in other parts of the world. Yeah, it's very interesting. I spoke to Frances Fox Piven some time ago, and she was talking about this, that there's never uh, actually a, a failure per se, that, that each step on the journey is a step that you can build on and take energy from and learn from and do better, as it were. Um, and I, I normally ask earlier on in the interview, what inspires you? And I, clearly this inspires you, Vijay. You see some optimism in terms of the, the, the range and uh, successes of these various movements. You see, in my opinion, if you are alive, you are optimistic um, because, you know, you want to wake up tomorrow and do new things and different things. I mean, pessimism is the, is the end of, of life, frankly. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to the pessimistic outlook. I think that the very fact that people continue, they are resilient and so on, is a source of optimism. And other people, brave people, braver people than you and I perhaps, are out there actually taking that everyday optimism and making it extraordinary optimism. That's what I hold on to. I mean, frankly, you're an optimistic person. You are optimistic that I would join you today on this uh, platform and that we'd have a conversation. You didn't expect me to not come, right? You were not pessimistic. You were optimistic about this small thing. This is an everyday optimism. You're optimistic that when you wake up and you make a cup of tea, it's not going to be bitter. That's the sense of everyday optimism. Well, then there are people who do extraordinarily optimistic things. You know, they are out there. People like the RMT and the UK, Mick Lynch and others, they built a trade union. They are out there on strike. They are fighting for the rights of, of their workers. That extraordinary optimism gives other people, it's infectious. It gives other people a sense that they're also capable of doing something other than, you know, brewing a cup of tea and watching the telly, you know, that they can actually go out there and change history. And it's that difference that, you know, the journey from everyday optimism to extraordinary optimism, that's what one teaches other people, you know, to, to see that, to see that they themselves are, in a sense, you know, in, in their existence, optimistic beings. Humans are inherently optimistic, I feel. Um, pessimism is, is a kind of ideology that's, again, imposed on us by circumstance. But, but still, we don't give, give in to it. Uh, when one gives into it, you get the terrible epidemic of suicides, for instance, which, you know, one sees in many parts of the world. Look, in India, from the 1990s, when they began to liberalize agriculture um, till recent years, over 300,000 farmers have been recorded as having committed suicide. Over 300,000 farmers in India. Uh, more than half a million, a third of a million farmers committed suicide. 
in the course of about 15 to 20 years. Well, ever since the farmer's struggle developed, first in Maharashtra, then in Rajasthan and now all India, the rates of farmer suicide has gone down. And so here's the, the theory, uh, that sense of futility, that sense of futility was lifted by the capacity of other people. And when you join other people in trying to make your own everyday reality better, uh, your sense of futility perhaps is slightly disturbed and you become, again, optimistic, both in your personal sense and then for the world. That's what we're looking for. More farmer strikes, more railroad workers on the move, more people like Mick Lynch going on British television and telling it like it is, you know, just having him say it like it is is impressive to other people because they are fed up with hearing people dance around the issues. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to end on a on a, on a more uh, down note, shall we say, but I would like to get your uh, opinion on what is happening geopolitically at the moment. We've got the continuing uh, Ukraine war. We've got the huge support from NATO, from the US militarily for Ukraine. Um, you wrote the book, uh, Washington Bullets, which was you know, a critique of the US-led liberal international order. But you mentioned already the, the weapons manufacturers, vast sums of money being spent, uh, Congress just giving, you know, tens of billions uh, to, to support Ukraine, uh, Germany massively increasing its military budget and wanting to become a military leader. Uh, you know, this is not a good time for vast amounts of capital to be put into war. Well, certainly not. I mean, but that's been the case for a very long time. I mean, you know, um, the budgets of, of the um, rich countries are just laden with weapon spending. I mean, look, look at the United States. About half of its known budget is spent on war making. Meanwhile, the bridges are in catastrophe. Uh, you know, Joe Biden as the president couldn't even get a good infrastructure bill passed to fix Basic things, you know, airports are in bad shape. You land in the U.S. airport, it's it looks like it's, you know, extremely dated in its technology. You land in China, meanwhile, and they have high-tech airports, they have high-speed rail. I, I was actually pretty stunned to see how poor the rail is in um, in the U.K. these days. And in Ireland, there is no rail. Um, you know, it's, it's extraordinary that from Dublin to Galway, you don't have a high-speed train. Uh, or from Dublin to Belfast, there's no high-speed train. It, it's incredible uh, that the, the island doesn't have trains. Um, in other parts of the world, trains are developed uh, and, you know, are extraordinary. I mean, the Chinese trains are at a different level, by the way. You mentioned China there, because this is connected, isn't it? How do you read what's going on? What is America's relationship to China? Um, this Taiwan thing has for the moment at least, seems to undermine many aspects of negotiation between America and China, particularly when it comes to climate. What do you think is going on, Vijay? I mean, look, frankly, it's too, it'll take too much time to get into it. Some of it has to do with the fact that after the world financial crisis of 2007-8, the Chinese decided to pivot away from what the chief economist at the IMF, Raghunath Rajan, called the satanic embrace between China and the United States. You know, China has sought new markets through the Belt and Road Initiative, both in Europe, but also in the global south, breaking away from its reliance on selling goods to the United States. That's one part of it. Secondly, Chinese firms very cleverly use their bargaining contracts with Western companies to develop new technologies. I mean, China is now 
the world leader in robotics, in sections of uh, communications, technology, high tech, uh, you know, telecom. China is a leader in, in, in green technology, in high speed rail and so on. Well, in my opinion, the United States sees that as a serious threat and has been trying to essentially uh, cut back on China's development. I mean, the attack on Huawei was a naked attack to say that the United States would defend Western telecommunication firms against the rise of a Chinese firm, which can produce as good technology at much lower cost. Um, and this, this doesn't just stay there. I mean, high-speed rail is a very good example. You want to deal with the climate catastrophe, you need to move from cars to rail. That's very clear. You know, you don't want to go from private carbon car to private electric car. You want to go to public rail. It's far better for the planet. But to go to public rail, if you want high-speed rail, you're going to have to engage the Chinese. I come back to the old formula put out there by the head of the WHO at the beginning of the pandemic. That's Dr. Tedros. Dr. Tedros, in a public statement, when he began to sense the anti-China rhetoric coming from the United States, he gave a public statement where he said, we need more collaboration and less confrontation. I believe that. I think, you know, we need to build more bridges and bomb less of them. But it doesn't look like America thinks like that. And it doesn't look like that's the direction of travel. Well, it may have to look like that in time. And, and you know, what, what is the evidence we have for that? Um, the United States is itself a country in some distress, internal distress. Um, there's immense political gridlock. It's a divided society. Um, it's going to have a hard time in the long run financing uh, it, both a, um, a, a new technological revolution and its military. You know, right now, the Biden administration is very eager to you know, onshore chip manufacturing, semiconductor chips, very keen to onshore other high tech production into the United States. That's an interesting development. It's going to take a lot of capital. Can they raise the amount of capital needed for that? and maintain the military at the enormous levels that they maintain, economics does not suggest that you can do both. You know, you're going to have to choose. Uh, either you use the military to impose your will on the planet, or you build the next generation technology and basically out-commerce the rest of the world. But you can't do both at the same time. So, yes, you're right. It doesn't look like that's the journey being taken by the United States, but they are soon going to face a fork in the road. But I think the political gridlock in the U.S. is not going to permit um, an easy choice. And so there's going to be drift. And we know from historical experiences, when a big country drifts like that, it leads you into very dangerous waters. Yeah. Yeah. What's next for you, Vijay? Next, I will be in the very fine island of Cuba discussing what Fidel Castro called the battle of ideas. In other words, how to talk about the fundamental issues of human life with people uh, so that, you know, we can have a public discussion about how to save the planet rather than how to destroy it. That's a great vision. Thank you so much for your time today, Vijay. Fascinating discussion. And I wish you the very best with your ongoing work. It's my pleasure. Take care of yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you will enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation for an alternative worldview of connectedness, 
weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism and indigenous knowledge. It offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.